0: All comments and observations in this podcast are made in a personal capacity and we're expressing personal views by way of legal commentary. While every effort is made to ensure that the contents of each episode are accurate, none of the contents of any episode are professionally embarrassing are intended to be a substitute for legal advice. No liability is accepted for any error or omission within any episode. to professionally embarrassing your fortnightly family law podcast hosted by me Malika. and me maddie
1: Welcome back to episode three of Professionally Embarrassing. We are taking a break from the usual order of play this episode, and we're going to do a deep dive into the recent case of ReHN, which is the long-awaited conjoined domestic abuse appeals, which was handed down on the 30th of March. We're still going to be doing Tweet of the Week and book podcast talk recommendations later on in the episode, so do stay with us until the end.
0: There is so much of ReHN to unpack it concerned four conjoined appeals and Maddie and I have taken two each that we will take you through listeners as well as breaking down the court's wider commentary about the treatment of domestic abuse in the family courts. So Maddie, do you want to start us off? Yes so the structure I've decided on is I'm going to do re hn the title
1: appeal first because I think it's an important contextual appeal and I'm also blessed with talking to you both about both of His Honour Judge Tolson's appeals, and we can see how the court treats them when they are from the same judge. So I think it's pretty interesting. So kicking off with re-HN, which is right at the back of the judgment, it starts at paragraph 185. And this was a fact finding that took place in front of His Honour Judge Tolson on the 28th of August, 2020. All the other appeals in this case were from 2019. So this is the most recent. Now, you'll know, and any listeners who are keen family lawyers will know that His Honour Judge Tolson does not have the best reputation when it comes to fact findings because of JH and MF, which came out at the beginning of 2020 and was somewhat of an evisceration by Mrs Justice Russell of one of Tolson's fact findings in relation to allegations of rape. This case, RHN, also concerns allegations of rape in short the father is french and the mother is british and they have one child hn and the mother made a number of fairly well very significant allegations that when taken together amounted to what she said was a course of controlling and coercive behavior and one of those allegations included that the father had unlawfully retained the child hn in France from December of 2018 until September of 2019, when he lost his Hague Convention proceedings and was ordered to return the child to England. He then made child arrangements application in England in November of 2019, and it was in that context that the fact-finding came before the court. Now, it's a slightly odd case management case because His Honour Judge Tolson gave the mother permission at the outset of the hearing to rely on a further allegation of rape that was not originally pled within the Scott schedule. And we'll come back to Scott schedules um, in a moment. But the judge rightly recognized that the allegation of rape was serious and rightly allowed the mother to rely on it despite the fact that it had come in late. But then the judge makes a number of comments following the fact finding. And I'm just gonna read you this paragraph because I think it really exemplifies why this appeal was so important at the time that it came out. So 194 in the judgment. The judge rightly recognized that an allegation of rape is serious, but went on to say that its relevance was quote, more limited so far as the best interests of the child are concerned in circumstances where there were many later occasions of consensual sex and limited also by the fact that HN had stayed with the father by consent for a lengthy period in 2018. The judge commented that such allegations are quote, increasingly common And whilst emphasising that he was not making a political point, expressed his belief that, quote, it is necessary to factor in the effects of a system which encourages allegations of domestic abuse. The judge referred to what he regarded as the significant advantages to a litigant in, quote, portraying herself as a victim of serious domestic abuse by reference to the availability of public funding in such circumstances and to what he described as, quote, professional sympathy. The judge expressed the view that this mother is a victim of domestic abuse by virtue of the father's, quote, minor omissions, and expressed the hope that she would retain public funding for the next stage of the case. We are bound to say that such comments were inappropriate and should not have been made. Now, the allegations the mother makes are that the father punched the mother early in the relationship, that he slapped her across the face while she was eight months pregnant with their child, that he subsequently punched a wall and that he wrongfully retained the child in France. When she returned to France to try and get the child back, which was unsuccessful, there was a physical altercation in the presence of the child, and the father essentially made two admissions of domestic abuse, but the judge failed to make any of the findings that were pled by the mother, despite the fact that the father also admitted to opening the mother's post without her permission, brackets in itself, a highly controlling piece of behavior submitted on behalf of the mother. And the father had also admitted that he had slapped the mother following that argument about the post, but denied the slap that the mother alleged. So we know there was some elements of physical violence that were admitted by the father. And so the judge was forced to make a number of what he called minor findings in relation to that. And essentially the judge got this entirely wrong. What the mother was alleging was a abusive and controlling and coercive relationship throughout that involved ultimately the retention of the child as a means of controlling the mother. And the judge entirely believed almost everything that the father said to the point where he actively ignored evidence and actively ignored supportive and corroborative evidence within the papers. So for example, paragraph, 208 we can see the judge that is Tolson posed for himself the question as to whether the father's behaviour demonstrated that he was quote emotionally mentally and psychologically abusive of the mother by retaining HN in France. The judge accepted that the father's actions quote had an effect on the mother however that they did not affect her mentally in the long term save that they determined her upon denying the father any relationship with HN in the future. The judge went on the mother presents too great a picture of mental damage even before the events in January to September 2019 for me to ascribe those events as an active cause of her problems. Moreover, the father's motives in retaining the child were genuine." So the judge is just buying into absolutely everything that the father is selling, and essentially the court found that the entire way of approaching that case was wrong. The, the judge did not pay sufficient attention to corroborative evidence in the police disclosure and within the papers. He failed to take into account compelling evidence given by the mother and completely underestimated the seriousness of the allegations that were being sought. There was also evidence that the judge was unfairly biased against the mother. There was a holiday taken prior to the fact finding to the US by the mother, where she had left the child with the father and the the judge found that that must have indicated that she had no concerns at all in relation to the father. And he goes on to say that, as follows, the hearing, rather than a fact finding on the limited issues in dispute and a determination as to whether this was an abusive relationship, became a binary choice between A, a relationship characterised by the deeply controlling father described by the mother, a relationship in which she was blameless and under his spell, or B, the deeply troubled mother with mental health difficulties unrelated to the father's behaviour and responsible for the wild unbounded behaviour described by the father. The court at paragraph 218 says it goes without saying that an individual does not have to be blameless to be the victim of domestic abuse and neither was that the mother's case and essentially as I said the court found that on every ground of appeal that that could possibly have been imagined by counsel in this case this appeal was successful and they make a number of very insightful comments about the importance of treating domestic abuse as a serious and significant impact on the child in fact I think at paragraph 221 they say when this is put against the intensity of the judicial focus having rested on the mother's ability as a parent and her vulnerable mental health rather than on the allegations of domestic abuse it leaves one unclear as to whether what the judge was in fact seeing in the presentation of this mother was not an intelligent manipulative mother making up allegations for her own ends but a woman who whilst she had undoubtedly suffered mental health issues was demonstrating both in her behavior during the course of the relationship her presentation in court, the classic signs of a person who had been the victim of domestic abuse and in particular a controlling and coercive relationship. So that appeal was allowed on the basis of the judge's comments alone and the way in which the judge struck the balance between evidence, oral evidence, supportive evidence in the bundle and what to pay attention to and what not to pay attention to and essentially he was found to have paid far too much heed to what the father said as opposed to the balance of the evidence which really supported much of what the mother said. There's also an interesting point about underestimating the impact that retaining a child has. It's described by the court as the ultimate act of control by a parent is retaining a child in another country because it's obviously one of the most difficult things that a parent would have to go through, especially when done by the the other parent. So that kicks us off with Rehn. Do you want to take us forward with the others?
0: Yes, yeah, so the next case that I'm going to deal with is Re BB, which was an appeal again, by the mother against an order of his honor judge Scarrett which resulted in the making of a consent order, so an order by agreement between the parents setting out the time that father would the, the time that father would spend with the child BB. The basis of the appeal was that the judge had been wrong to make a consent order where there were unresolved allegations of serious domestic abuse including rape. Mother's case was also that the judge's approach over the course of multiple hearings meant that there had been no true consent on her part to the order and so the order was a product of serious procedural or other irregularity. The parties had separated around May, June 2017 and mother had moved out with the child and father didn't have contact between September and February 2017 to 2018 father made an application for BB to live with him and mother resisted that application and mother had also obtained a without notice non-molestation order against him. In August 2018 directions were made for a fact-finding hearing in respect of the cross allegations of the parties but over the course of the next year in what you and I Maddie know is becoming increasingly typical of the family courts no fewer than five times the matter was listed for trial and adjourned without a hearing due to various reasons including judicial unavailability, legal aid issues and in December 2018 mother made allegations of rape to the police. There was a hearing in March 2019 before His Honour Judge Scarrett and the matter was listed for a five-day fact find. The appeal court had the benefit of listening to the recording and it's quite apparent from the judgment that His Honour Judge Scarrett was really frustrated at that hearing for multiple reasons. Counsel for Father hadn't attended because of personal reasons, there had been non-compliance with directions, and the judge had only just received the papers. Again, you and I, Maddie, will know this is the kind of chaos that's increasingly characteristic of the family courts. The judge went on to make some very ill-considered comments. He said, if this goes on, the child will be taken into care and adopted which obviously would have been so upsetting to Mother and she can be heard crying on the tape. Father had made allegations that Mother takes cocaine and the judge asked her if she'd describe herself as an addict and her counsel told the court that she accepts taking drugs on one occasion by coercion. And Mother can be heard in the background weeping and denying that she's an addict. The judge then said that it may be that he'd have to report the matter to social services. Counsel for Mother then told the judge that the case isn't about drugs, but it's about the allegations by Mother of Abuse, to which the judge responded, well, how's that going to affect contact? Further attempts by Mother's counsel to flag up elements of her case didn't get anywhere, and the judge said that the party should sort it out, and that you should have had the riot act read to you months ago, and then the parties were sent out to see if they could reach an agreement. The parties, unsurprisingly, were unable to reach an agreement, and the following morning they came back before the judge in what the court describes as an infinitely calmer atmosphere. And the judge properly acknowledged that the allegations were serious, and if the parties couldn't agree a way forward, then the court would have to decide. He made fresh directions and limited the parties to five allegations each, and set the matter down for a three-day hearing in front of Honour Judge Cove. At the end of the hearing, the judge said that contact would have to come out of the contact centre at some point, And that's why fact findings are often a complete waste of time, because the end result will be that there will be at some stage contact outside with father. Anyway, unfortunately, the hearing in front of her honour Judge Cove didn't happen, but it came back again in front of his honour Judge Scarrett in August 2019. The judge commented in that hearing that this was a very straightforward case solely about contact and asked in those circumstances, do we have to have a fact finding? it was apparent that the parties had been having a chat outside court and mum's counsel said can you give us a bit more time with a view to reaching an agreement which the judge was happy to do before they left court he indicated that if negotiations failed he wouldn't be prepared to deal with the first allegation on the schedule which he said was insufficiently particularized and mother's counsel explained that that allegation was with reference to a course of conduct controlling and coercive behavior which had been particularized or, or set out in detail in her statement. The Court of Appeal says it's clear that the parties were discussing settlement before they came into court in August 2019. That was hardly surprising given the appalling litigation history and the judge's attitude towards the mother as demonstrated in March. It's hard to see how the mother faced with the prospect of a hearing in front of the same judge would have felt herself to have retained any real negotiating boundaries about contact. One can understand that the mother may have felt that she had little option but to settle, Particularly given the judge's opening remarks questioning the point of a fact finding hearing and his refusal to hear the allegations of controlling and coercive behaviour. In our judgment, such remarks could only have been felt by the mother to have reinforced the judge's previous attitude. It may indeed temporarily have been five months ago, but from this mother's perspective, it was her last experience in front of this judge. It's with reluctance that we reach this conclusion. It's well known that the judges sitting in the family court are and have been for some considerable time overworked. There was good reason for the judge to express frustration that none of the essential case management preparations for the hearing had been undertaken. There was, however, no justification for the judge to say that if this goes on, the child will be taken into care and adopted. Nor was there any justification for the judge twice referring to the possibility of reporting the case to social services. Really, really unfortunate case. It is a reality of the system that we're working in right now that judges are firefighting. They have so much on top of them. The caseload is unmanageable. District judges, recorders, circuit judges are completely under it. And while I can fully appreciate the judge was frustrated because of a lack of compliance with directions and because the case was just in a general state of disarray due to a number of factors, it's just unacceptable really, isn't it? There's absolutely no way that that those comments can be justified.
1: I mean, audibly sobbing on the tape that the justices in the Court of Appeal heard. I mean, there's no excuse for it. It's There's just no excuse for it. I'm not even going to attempt to explain how or why that happened. I mean, I'm so sorry to that mother and to that family. Horrendous from Scarrett. But I mean, we'll get into this when we get into the discussion later. But I think there is a general fatigue at the family bar for perceived domestic violence work and actually what the family court needs to recognise is that that is more likely to come up than not because if it didn't come up you're less likely to require the family court and I think if you look at the numbers that are quoted at the beginning of it of the whole judgment you can see that the vast um, majority of cases that involve contested hearings have elements of domestic abuse so whilst there is a fatigue amongst the judiciary there needs to be an attitude shift because the, the likelihood of coming to the family court because of domestic abuse is just much greater um, than if you simply can't agree. It's very rarely that.
0: Absolutely. Which is why, even though we're going to get onto this in the, in the discussion, I don't think the judgment's particularly groundbreaking, but I think it's still an important judgment just to highlight how endemic this issue is and how it's going to keep cropping up. And we need to have a consistent, empathetic, considered approach to the way that the family courts deal with domestic abuse allegations so that's re bb and we've decided that i'm going to do re t next in order before we go to the final case so re t is an appeal against a judgment by her honor judge evans gordon and one element of that appeal was that the judge had failed properly to find that mother had been anally raped by the father the court i'll say at the outset didn't allow that limb of the appeal on the basis that the trial judge had the advantage of seeing the parties give evidence and the judge was entitled to reach the conclusion she did about mother's credibility in respect of those allegations, she, for various reasons, found that she couldn't be satisfied the necessary standard of proof that the allegation of anal rape was true. However, the judge did make three findings against father, which in summary were that he slapped mother on one occasion, grabbed her in the vicinity of her neck, and may well have used words to the effect that he would kill the mother. But the judge said, it seems to me that these words are commonly used in anger, which do not import any genuine threat to life. (laughs) And then the third finding that father put a plastic bag over mother's head, but that she was not satisfied that it represented an attempt to kill or a threat to kill, or that mother felt threatened. And it may be that it was some sort of prank, but it was an unpleasant and aggressive thing to do. I mean listeners can't see us right now but we are are the expressions on our face on this zoom call as we are recording listening to those last two findings in particular the judge also found that mother had slapped father there was a further unpleasant unpleasant incident with pushing and slapping on both sides the day after that and that mother was aggressive to father and shouted at him and his daughter in a restaurant but all in all she concludes that it was a mutually abusive relationship and she concludes that I'm satisfied that this was relationship, which was one of mutual verbal and minor physical abuse attributable to relationship conflict. I'm not satisfied that T would be at risk from her father. I'm not satisfied that the father is a violent man as portrayed by the mother. It seems to me more likely that he was occasionally driven to anger and loss of control in conflicts with the mother in situations where she was verbally and occasionally physically abusing him. This is not an excuse. Well, it sounds like an excuse, Maddie, and I should not be taken as endorsing any abusive behaviour by either of the parties. But having separated, I cannot see that either poses a threat to the other or to T. The Court of Appeal, while they didn't allow the appeal in respect of the judge's failure to make a finding of anal rape, did find that the judge fell into error. The court says we have difficulty, for example, with the judge's observation in relation to the November 2017 strangling incident. The judge found that the Mother had said something that the father had said something to the effect that he would kill the mother, but she held that these words are commonly used in anger which do not import any genuine threat to life. We're not convinced that that is the case, but in any event, those words need to be considered in context, namely, that the judge had found that the father had probably held the mother in the vicinity of her neck at the time he spoke these words. There does not need to have been a genuine threat to life for this to be regarded as a a signal piece of highly intimidating behavior on father's part. And then the court goes on to say, we're particularly troubled by the plastic bag incident. We can't see on what basis the judge could conclude that coming up behind the mother who was on the floor holding their baby and putting a plastic bag over her head before saying this was the way she would die could be regarded as a prank. Yeah. I mean. It, it speaks for itself I don't know what it's else it's the <laughs> rationalization for me it's the rationalization
1: of these things like the court is saying this thing definitely happened but it's not as bad as it sounds that's just a, I mean what a leap to make cognitively yeah she he definitely did put a plastic bag over her head but we promise it wasn't as bad as that sounds
0: and then on to you for
1: case number four Yeah, so case number four, the reason I've left it till last is because it's the only appeal that was not allowed. And I think it's a really helpful one to look at briefly um, in the context of this case. So it's re-H, which starts at paragraph 116 of the judgment. And it is again in front of His Honour Judge Tolson. And it is again regarding allegations of rape. By the time the matter came before the court, so the mother had a fact finding in front of His Honour Judge Tolson, made two allegations of rape. Neither of those allegations were found by His Honour Judge Tolson, and it may or may not be that that was the wrong thing to have found. But the court doesn't really decide on that point, because by the time the matter comes before the Court of Appeal, the father has been having unsupervised contact with the child, and a letter was written directly to the court in December 2020 setting out by the London Borough of Hammersmith and Fulham, which was obviously involved in the case, expressing that they thought that contact was progressing very well and the child was enjoying very positive contact and the local authority were considering extending contact to overnight. At the moment, it was only daytime and the social work team had no concerns about safety and well-being of the child whilst in her father's care. And in fact, the contact for the child was extremely positive and undoubtedly in her best interests. But the mother had appealed the fact-finding as made by Tolson, because what had happened after the fact-finding is that the parents had agreed that the father should have unsupervised contact from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. And that contact had then led to this letter from the local authority and everyone agreeing that contact was going very well. So the mother came to court in this case, saying to the court, I don't want contact to stop. I don't think that contact should go back to supervised I do think it should continue as it has been since September 2019 when the order was made. But I want to appeal the order that says the allegations were not true, even though it makes very little difference to contact on the ground. So what the court does in this case is it looks at the question of an academic appeal, which is basically whether you appeal something because it is the wrong thing to have done, regardless of whether it makes any difference to the parties on the ground. And there's case law on this. There's a a case, um, called Hutchison and Popdog and what that says is the mere fact that the projected appeal may raise a point or more than one point of significance does not mean that it should be allowed to proceed where there are no longer any real issues in the proceedings as between the parties and essentially that is fully endorsed by the Court of Appeal in this case who say as much as we would be happy to look at other cases where allegations of rape are not found and that may be for the wrong reason, this precise case, VH, within the context of these four conjoined appeals, is not that case. And they decline to allow the appeal on the basis that it has no practical influence to the party's position on the grounds. It will make no difference to whether the child continues to see her father or not. And so what they say at paragraph 151 is, We are satisfied that there would be no purpose in considering the merits of the judge's judgment in relation to his approach to the allegations made by the mother, given that they no longer have any direct relevance to any welfare decisions which need to be made in relation to the child. We emphasise, however, that we would not have hesitated to determine the appeal had a true purpose in doing so been identified. And what they do say is that it is part of a group of appeals being heard together as potentially raising the same or similar issues, and therefore the broader issues of public interest raised in VH are dealt with, Properly by Re B, B, Re T, and Re H N, so it's an interesting one because it's the only one not granted, and it's the one that really considers what the impact of contact is and what the point of these fat findings are for the court. And so that's why we need to go all the way back to the beginning of the judgment
0: and talk about all the things that the court raises, which is kind of a nothing burger, but we can talk about it anyway. So, paragraph thirty-four of the judgment, the court sets out the four important issues that it's considering. So one, whether there should be a finding of fact hearing in any individual case. Two, the challenges presented by Scott schedules as a means of pleading a case. Three, if a fact finding hearing is necessary and proportionate, how should an allegation of domestic abuse be approached? And four, the relevance of criminal law concepts. Right, I'm gonna put it out there. I don't think this judgment is a big deal. I don't think it says anything that's particularly new. I don't think it says anything particularly interesting. I think that in the words of Jack Harrison, that there are some cases that are peak cases that you have to remember and that everyone will be referring to all the time. And there are some cases which are highly anticipated and then don't give the punters what they want. He ultimately concludes that this is an important case. I'm a bit more neutral about it. I don't think that the court, because of the nature of what the Court of Appeal does. So the Court of Appeal says in paragraph two, right at the outset, There's a limit to the extent to which we can give general guidance, in part because there are various initiatives already in train, but also because there is plainly and properly a limit to what a constitution of the Court of Appeal determining for individual appeals can and as a matter of law should say about issues which do not strictly arise in any of these appeals. The Court doesn't say anything particularly dramatic about structural issues within the system that is problematic in terms of how the family courts deal with domestic abuse. The court finds that practice direction 12J, which is the framework within which practitioners operate to deal with allegations of domestic abuse in the family court, remains fit for purpose. And the court ultimately says it it seems to resist any suggestion that judges aren't getting it or that there's some kind of inherent problem in the way the judiciary deals with these sorts of cases. It says that we're confident that the modern approach that we've described, um, namely to domestic abuse, the idea that the approach regarding coercive and controlling incidences in the past and therefore of little relevance isn't appropriate or you know just a more sophisticated understanding of domestic abuse generally we're confident that the modern approach that we've described is already well understood and has become embedded through training and experience in the practice of the vast majority of judges and magistrates sitting in the family court well at least three of those four appeals would probably beg to differ but the court seems to be saying there isn't a problem here guys, there's there's nothing to worry about. Everything's just fine.
1: Don't look over here. Look over there. (laughs) Yeah, I think I agree with you about whether this case is groundbreaking in terms of how we treat domestic abuse. I think the answer is no. Uh, You know, it's a ringing endorsement of practice direction 12J. So really what we should be discussing is whether we think practice direction 12J is any good. But I think that's a difficult conversation. And at the moment, I think there's very little amendments that can practically be made to it without statutory guidance. So we're in difficulties there. But I do think there's an interesting bit in this judgment, if you'll indulge me, which is the application of criminal principles. Because my very good friend and colleague, Miss Carmeny Kumar, who was representing the mother in the REHN appeal, had this conversation with me just before the case went to the Court of Appeal. And I found it incredibly interesting. And I think it's a very ripe discussion that the family court needs to have with itself. And I think the way that REHN the judgment deals with it is really good. The question is, of course, about allegations of rape. So we see them a lot in family courts. We see them a lot in allegations of domestically abusive relationships. And it can be all kinds of rape. It can be, you know, I was controlled and coerced to to a point where I didn't feel I could say no, or I was actively had sex with while I was asleep, or I was, you know, raped without my consent in another form, you know, and all of them amount to the same thing which is very significant sexual assault perpetuated by one parent on the other and there is a concern i think from the court of appeal that family courts are concerning themselves too much with the criminal legal language so we know from criminal law that to establish rape you have to have penetrative sex with someone without their consent and without the perpetrator having a reasonable belief in that consent so you get into all sorts of nasty case law that I will leave to, to criminal practitioners but that question about whether the perpetrator had a reasonable belief in the consent of the victim has started to creep in to the family courts and the court of appeal are very clear I think in RHN that that is not appropriate and that what the court should not be doing is concerning itself with protracted discussions of legal definitions, and instead deal with what findings are being sought and what findings the court should make. And I think you can see it, for example, paragraph 64, they they discuss a a previous case, which is called Re R. And they say, Hinkbottom, Lord Justice Hinkbottom, in his concurring judgment in which he very firmly agreed with Lord Justice McFarlane, succinctly put it in the following way the importation of concepts from the criminal courts to the family court is inappropriate, unnecessary and unwise and should be avoided. And that's because we get bogged down in this language of proving something beyond a reasonable doubt and that's why the criminal law has the safeguards it has, because it is dealing with punishment of offenders, but the family courts have started to say well if we're we're saying that someone raped someone then we've got to say that it's raped within the criminal context rather than the family context. And so I do think that RHN is very helpful about that and what it says at, at paragraph 71 is that the family court should be concerned to determine how the parties behaved and what they did with respect to each other and their children, rather than whether the behavior does or does not come within strict definition of rape, murder, manslaughter or other serious crimes behaviour which falls short of establishing rape, for example, may nevertheless be profoundly abusive and should certainly not be ignored or met with a finding akin to not guilty in the family context. For example, in the context of the family court, considering where there has been a pattern of abusive behaviour, the borderline as between consent and submission may be less significant than it would be in the criminal trial of allegation of rape or sexual assault. And I think that that's actually a really helpful part of the judgment because Judges sometimes do get, especially if judges are recorders who sometimes sit in the criminal division, then they get bogged down in the detail of the language and saying someone is a rapist is a very significant allegation and we must guard against that. But actually, this judgment's reminding us that we're making findings, not crimes or, you know, indicting people on a for a sentence. We're just saying, well, this is how the relationship was and this is my judgment in relation to what the relationship looked like. It doesn't need to involve intricate analysis of the criminal law. So I thought that was interesting. Scott schedules.
0: Mm, Scott schedules. I am going to be controversial here. I don't see the big deal about Scott schedules. I think they're quite useful. I think they're all right. I think that no matter what kind of document or what kind of framework you use there are various suggestions that the parties and their advocates put to the court um, pleadings in a in a civil law form a threshold document like in care proceedings a narrative statement in a prescribed form they give all those suggestions the court doesn't really express a view on any of that doesn't feel it's its place it's just to flag up what the parties have suggested i think no matter what kind of framework you use you're going to have to draw a line In terms of the number of allegations the court is being asked to determine, you're going to have to draw a line somewhere. And that's the main criticism being levelled against Scott schedules. For anyone who doesn't know what a Scott schedule is, who isn't a practitioner, it's a, a table, effectively, a list of allegations, which the person making the allegations is asking the court to find happened. And with Scott schedules, the approach of many courts is to say, well, we need to limit the number of allegations that you put in your schedule to five, to 10, whatever it might be. I do think that there needs to be a line drawn somewhere. Otherwise, the parties will throw everything and the kitchen sink into the proceedings and the court will be asked to settle an unmanageable number of allegations. We'll find matters listed for four, five, six day fact finding hearings, which the system absolutely won't be able to cope with, though I appreciate that resource issues aren't a reason for not trying a case fairly and justly but which may well be entirely disproportionate to the issues in the case and there is a balance to be struck between allowing parties to raise the allegations that they want to raise but also case managing the case in a way which is in line with the overriding objective i think the issue we have with scott schedules would arise even if we had a narrative statement parties aren't going to or shouldn't be filing 30 page statements detailing everything that has happened within this relationship it's not practical and the court just can't cope with it i think i do disagree with you actually i hate to do
1: it but it's not to happen at some point i don't like scott schedules very much at all and i'll tell you why i think it's because and i think the court highlight this actually at paragraph 43 they say one striking feature of the dozen oral submissions heard during the hearing of these appeals was that there was effective unanimity that the value of scott schedules in domestic abuse cases has declined to the extent that in the view of some they were now a potential barrier to fairness and good process rather than an aid and i can actually see the force in that it depends how cases are litigated and how particular judges or barristers like to run or hear their cases but i have had experience both directly and indirectly through colleagues or or anecdotally of people using scott schedules as a means to undermine people's evidence and say well this isn't in your scot schedule you're saying this now in the stand and you didn't put it in your scot schedule and in the context of domestic abuse which is often long running and often in long term drawn out relationships especially if the parties have children together then it's very difficult to try and limit your day-to-day life and characterize your day-to-day relationship into a box that's dated and timed and I can see the force in saying that actually a scot schedule is often used Um, and that's not necessarily criticism I mean you run your case how you want to uh, you know uh, make no um, comment about that but people do use them tribunals and lawyers to undermine the value of the evidence that is being given by the victim and I think that's a problem I think it is less of a problem with narrative statements because you have an opportunity to explain what's happened and explain what the relationship was like and say well he did this to me x y z but it happened all the time. You know, here's an example, but it happened all the time. Things like, you know, isolating you from your friends and family. How does that, how do you particularize that? Things like telling you that you, he doesn't like what you wear and then ultimately buying all your clothes for you or something like that. And I'm using he by the way, but I do accept that this is not always perpetrated by men, of course. It's very difficult to particularize things like that. And I think that's why a narrative statement is particularly important. And often they're drafted very well, these narrative statements and they contain a lot more information than a squat schedule ever could and I just can't see the continuing value in a squat schedule during a fact finding when you have in front of you a narrative statement and they're, they're not often super long I would I would agree that they should be limited in, in page numbers but you can get a lot into a 10 page statement and I think if we're going to start taking seriously which I think this judgment reinforces that we should have been already and should continue to do so taking very seriously patterns of behavior and allegations that seem small but are actually significant in the context of the relationship we've got to get rid of the kind of overly formulaic approach of a scott schedule i think the
0: issue that you raise would arise with a statement as well because if someone were to mention something in the witness box when i was cross examining them which wasn't in their statement i'd make the exact same point i'd say why isn't this in your statement inevitably no matter what kind of document or framework you use the person who's alleging the abuse probably won't be able to put everything in will say something new and then it will be put to them that it's a credibility issue that you you must be lying or you're not t- giving us the full picture because you've not mentioned this before so i don't think we avoid that by having a narrative statement and also scott schedules usually aren't a scott schedule scott schedules aren't evidence in and of themselves right scott schedules come with statements and they effectively draw out the allegations from the statement but the statement still stands so it's not like parties don't have an opportunity to prepare a witness statement i also think that maybe the issue is not so much with scott schedules but the way in which scott schedules are drafted i very rarely see a well-drafted scott schedule a lot of the time i just see copying and pasting of chunks of the statement and then straight into the scott schedule i don't see any difficulty for example with having the headline allegation in the scott schedule being coercive and controlling behavior and then it's particularized in sub bullet points or whatever saying he wouldn't let me wear what i wanted or he would take my phone and read my messages again i use he though i appreciate it's not always he so i i remain unconvinced that scott schedules are useless and redundant i think they're quite a helpful way of marshalling the allegations in a way that's manageable because there needs to be some sort of structure placed on allegations that just that just does because it, it would be impossible to manage a case especially a case where the relationship is really long where there's long-standing allegations of domestic abuse the court any court would not be equipped resource issues aside to deal with all of that So I think we'll have to agree to disagree. It might be the only time we've ever disagreed on anything in this podcast so far. On the point of the impact of domestic abuse on the child and exploring what exactly is the the causal link between the allegation that's been made and the child's welfare, paragraph 31 of the judgment's really interesting. And it's a useful tool for any practitioner to have in their back pocket if they're ever in court and a judge says, but how is this relevant to the child's welfare? Because it lists in, in a compact way that a child can be harmed in a combination of ways by abusive behaviour. So, for example, if they directly witnessed it, obviously, but also if the victim of the abuse was so frightened of provoking an outburst or a reaction from the perpetrator that they're unable to give priority to the needs of the child. It creates an atmosphere of fear and anxiety in the home, which is inimical to the welfare of the child. And it risks inculcating, particularly in boys, a set of values which involve treating women as being inferior to men. So I think that that's quite a useful reminder to have in the back of our mind that domestic abuse matters i mean that's obvious but i just need to say it for the avoidance of doubt it matters it is relevant it does affect children in all sorts of ways in ways that aren't immediately obvious or visible and could manifest many years down the line when they are entering adulthood themselves so it's absolutely crucial that we take it seriously at this stage because it could have such long-lasting implications for uh, a child's psychology for how they have relationships with other people how they are as parents themselves and that's what we need to not forget in these cases is as much as it's very important that the victims of domestic abuse are treated properly by the family courts and they're heard and they are respected and their wishes and feelings and their safety and personal integrity is respected but that there are children at the heart of this who will be very very deeply affected if there was domestic abuse which was not properly and robustly investigated and if they have a relationship with the parent who allegedly perpetrated that abuse, which is entirely inappropriate against that background.
1: Yeah, I entirely agree. And I would entirely endorse everything you just said. I mean, domestic abuse matters for so many reasons. And as you say, paragraph 31 is a, is a really key example of some of the ways in which domestic abuse is a perpetrator of so many other ills in society. Um, it's It's a scourge and it shouldn't be happening. And there's so many ways that it affects mothers, fathers, children, wider family, and yeah, the court demands the best. We should demand the best for people who have been through this. And it's there's no reason why we can't continue to review our approach and continue to review how well we understand and treat this issue because I think it has to be ongoing as, as things develop and as our understandings develop, we have to continue to develop with it because that's, our, as I said at the beginning, our main job at the family bar, you very rarely see cases that don't feature some element of domestic abuse, especially at, at our level. So I think there's a there's an ongoing responsibility to review our treatment of it.
0: One last issue I want to touch on before we move on from Rehn, Maddie, is legal aid, because of course all of the appellant mothers were eligible for legal aid, and all of the respondent fathers were not eligible for legal aid, and so had pro bono representation for this appeal. We ranted a little bit about legal aid in the last episode, but it goes without saying that it is an appalling state of affairs where there is such an imbalance of power between the parties given the seriousness of the allegations that are being made against the respondents that the applicants are able to access legal aid and the respondents are not. It makes these cases a hundred times more difficult to manage, just practically on a day-to-day level. It must, of course, be incredibly difficult for the person making the allegations to have the person against whom they're making the allegations in court, unrepresented, no professional barrier. That's a very, very difficult just just manner of interaction within the proceedings. But putting that aside, someone who's not represented doesn't know what they're doing, doesn't know what they need to comply with most of the time, doesn't know Um, what the expectations are of them and it makes everything so much harder and there is such an article six right to a fair trial implication here because they just don't have access to the same representation as the applicants do and it it's just not sustainable it's not acceptable and it needs to be reviewed urgently
1: yes bearing in mind everything that we've just talked about and how seriously we do take domestic abuse there is also a key element to this, which is often overlooked, which is that it's not treated fairly in terms of procedure. It's very, very difficult to ensure procedural and substantive fairness when one party is represented by a barrister who does this work all the time, and one party is coming into court, possibly for the first time in their lives, reading a 500-page bundle and trying to cross-examine someone on very significant allegations of sexual or physical violence, for example. It's just not fair, of course it's not fair. And the only way that I think that we can achieve what you and I have just said we need to achieve in the family courts is by parity of legal aid, undoubtedly. There is no justifiable reason to say that someone who has accused someone of domestic violence is more deserving of legal aid than someone who themselves has been accused. It is so important for the justice system that this is given priority and, Yeah, I mean, we can do it more in depth into legal aid at some point and what it actually looks like and what it means. But it's undoubtedly ridiculously unfair that these um, respondents are denied the opportunity to have fair legal representation. And maybe a lot of the time, some of the judgments that we see coming out wouldn't have happened because judges aren't bending over backwards to try and make things easier for unrepresented parties. When actually what they should be doing is looking at the evidence holistically from counsel who have presented it in a fair way. I think that might be some of the concerns as well that His Honour Judge Tolson talked about in ReHN, not in any way in an appropriate manner, but he does touch on the fact that there's an idea that being a victim of domestic abuse is somehow advantageous in the family court system, which is a horrendous precedent to set. And
0: the reason that precedent set is because the respondents don't get legal aid. It's 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 a resource issue. And it's also an allegation that's levelled often by respondents, which is that they're only making the allegations because they can access legal aid. So it becomes a cycle which feeds into the animosity between the parties. Exactly. Right. Moving on to our next segment, book, tweet, podcast recommendations. Tell me, Maddie, what have you been reading, listening to, watching? Well, I did attend the Diversity in the Legal Profession seminar last week with Professor Jo Dalhanty.
1: It was her last lecture at Gresham College as professor of law. And it was really, really good. I really enjoyed it. The panel were fantastic. Derek Sweet in QC was there, who is chairman of the Bar Council. Mass Dow Neige was there, who runs Bridge the Bar. Bree Stevens Hall QC, who um, is fantastic, and Toby Coop as well. And they were discussing not only what diversity at the bar should look like, but actually how resource-wise and physically we're going to get there. And I thought it was a really reflective and self-aware discussion about diversity that you don't often see at at the bar and sometimes the bar has a tendency to be a little bit self-congratulatory on these things. Oh women are allowed to be barristers now so feminism's fixed is kind of the attitude that I saw quite a lot when I was a junior like coming up to try and be a pupil and things like that so it's very refreshing to see these discussions happening regularly and it was it was very well attended. Um, And shout out to Mass who just does incredible work with Bridge the Bar. And I would urge any barristers listening to sign up to be mentors for Bridge the Bar because it's undoubtedly an amazing project. And if you
0: don't wanna sign up, then you should donate your money. What about you? Well, I know you're really interested in the state of surrogacy laws in this jurisdiction. So there is an article in the Times called, I might mispronounce her name, Sophie Bresner or uh, Beresina. Sophie Beresina on becoming a legal mother at last. So Sophie is a journalist and she has a column called The Mother Project which is about her journey from having cancer which took away her fertility to then becoming a mother via a surrogate. So I only realised today when I was looking her up in preparation for recording this session that that article is part of a column and there are a whole load of articles that I'm going to have a proper read of, would urge listeners to read because they look super interesting and you can also follow at the mother project on instagram where you can see some adorable pictures of sophie and her baby so sophie writes about the day that a parental order was made in her favor so she used a surrogate mother and the way as you know the law operates here is that the legal mother of the child when the child is born is the surrogate the gestational mother and the father or the second parent is either the surrogate's spouse or civil partner or the intended father where his sperm is used. So. Practically speaking, that means the intended parents have to make an application for a parental order, which would then give them legal parenthood and parental responsibility. And it can take months for that parental order to be granted because our courts are so backed up, it probably takes ages to get a hearing. There's a chunk of this article that's really lovely, which is about the actual hearing. And she says, there were three magistrates, our two lawyers and our barrister. I now pronounce you mother and father, you may kiss your baby. Only she was napping upstairs. So we had a quick glass of champagne. Mr. B went back up to work and I had a little cry. But then the concluding chunk of the article is a commentary on the state of the law in this country. Sophie refers to them as archaic and says that they need to change because it makes the process uncertain for both the surrogate and for the intended parents. And she says, while I've spent the past 10 months basking in my motherhood, it has actually been otherhood in the eyes of the law, which I think is such a powerful line. I thought you'd find it interesting because last week when we were talking about re-Z, you spoke about the unequal treatment of parents who have children in these non-traditional ways or with the use of technology and the current state of surrogacy law means that intended parents are not legal parents for months after birth which is both a practical problem because they could be raising a child about whom they can't make any important decisions and there's also a psychological problem around their sense of identity as this child's parents. I imagine that parents who use a surrogate are parents who have had a very difficult time conceiving a child parents who have desperately wanted a child and to then get to the point where they finally have a child but it's not really their child in the eyes of the law what that must do to the parent's psyche is probably something i couldn't put into words and it really can't be underestimated so there is clearly problems with the way that the framework is structured at the moment and there are questions around whether it's fit for purpose
1: Yeah, definitely. I think it is so interesting, surrogacy generally, as a thing. And yeah, I do talk about it a lot. I'm very keen on it. And any use of artificial reproductive technology or anything like that, I find fascinating because it really does regulate an area of life that is not actually regulated unless you need to use it, which seems a little bit unfair. You know, people are allowed to have children whenever they want, unless they want to use technology and then they can't. And I think something with surrogacy, the laws in England are weird. This idea of the gestational mother being the mother means that you really only ever see surrogacy cases come to court when their mother changes her mind. And I mean, can you imagine anything more more devastating than thinking that you're going to have a child of your own through a surrogate and then the surrogate changes her mind and is legally the mother? And there's very little recourse um, for that because paid or reimbursed surrogacy is illegal here as well. So it's a very interesting area, and I think it's it's good to highlight the positives of surrogacy as well. I think a lot of people talk about surrogacy in a very negative way. It's a very positive process and can be very positive, but it, it does require an update in terms of English law. It's, it's pretty archaic, and it's pretty unfair and unjustifiable, I think, in a lot of ways. But, yeah, well, good, good for Sophie, and good luck to her and baby. Very briefly, I'm going to give you my tweet of the week, which I think you've seen. But it's from Jack Harrison, who we apparently just can't stop talking about on this podcast. But it was the first day of second six pupilage last week. And Jack tweeted this on the 7th of April. I'm enjoying all the first day of second six stories from friends and colleagues. I would tell you all about mine, but the film will be out soon. Nothing to add your honor, starring Idris Elba as the judge, Jason Statham as Jack Harrison, and Kate Blanchett as prosecuting counsel. And that just made me laugh so much because I was reflecting on my first case as a second six barrister. And I think I literally said about seven words. And my client said afterwards, I was so happy with my representation, thank you. And I was like, oh, I'm brilliant at my job. Um, And it is such a funny time to reflect around that April, because it is when all the little second sixes are starting on their feet. And I wish them all so much luck and it gets so much easier and so much less fun (laughs) after a few months um, and you get used to it. But I thought that was very funny from Jack. So thanks for that.
0: Who do you think would play you in a movie? Well, I've been told Jennifer Lawrence, which I absolutely hate. Who do you think? I wouldn't mind Simone Ashley, who's going to be the new lead in season two of Bridgerton, because she's Tamil like me. Um, Shout out to that Tamil representation on Bridgerton. I'm here for it. So I think that would be a pretty cool choice. I mean, she's lots better looking than me and probably smarter and wittier and, and better than me in every sense, which is, of course, what we look for when we want someone to represent us on screen. And my tweet of the week is from Rachel Chan at 42 Bedford Row at Rachel Chan 42BR. And she quote tweets a case called AB and CD and comments, there are 26 letters in the alphabet. Can we please give the other 22 letters a chance? Or maybe we can do something similar to the Met Office. For example, ant, beetle, caterpillar, dragonfly, earwig. I agree, Rachel. I'm a big fan of scrapping letters, replacing them with pseudonyms or fictional characters in cases. I don't really know why we don't do it. We know it can be done. There's the judgment of Mr. Justice Jackson, as he was at the time, in 2017, Rie, which Rie, I hear you ask, it's called Rie, a letter to a young person, and he refers to the child in the judgment as Sam, so I don't know why he didn't just call it Re-Sam, but you could, you could get the child involved in the process of picking their name for the judgment and give them a sense of inclusion, but it is the absolute worst, as both a student and as a practitioner, to keep having to remember the letter of the case that you're trying to find. Right. I think that's everything for episode three. Again, we've recorded way over the time that we hoped that we'd recorded for. And there's probably going to be some severe editing in the editing room by our producer, Luke. Shout out to him. But that covers ReHN. If you do have any comments, please tweet us, send in messages to us on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the show notes. But until next time, bye-bye.
1: Thanks, everyone. Bye.